Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. When I was reading about the origin stories uh, of your business, I was fascinated to see that when you started, you were actually really trying to solve the problem around performance management rather than culture per se. What, what sort of led to the initial pivot? So it was, it was an interesting one. I started on culture. Like I started the company because I was, I, as a CEO, I joke you're a glorified psychiatrist. <laughs> I was fascinated by how do we, how do we scale culture and you know, tools into the hands of people. And so I looked at which were the problems that I thought I could solve. And the first problem that really attracted my attention was what we would call the performance review problem. Yeah. So this is almost 10 years ago. And my observation was, why is it that we have this almost universally loathed annual backwards looking process when if you read all of the research, what we really need is some sort of forward looking continuous coaching conversation. Mm. So started life trying to build a product to solve that problem, actually built a tool, uh, had customers paying customers on it. And it was very much around feedback and how we give feedback to each other and how we encourage that and make it work. And we hadn't really got to the point where we had a, a compelling alternative to the traditional performance review, but we had a new way of having people interact with each other. And that was, you know, it was a couple of years of me trying to figure out what I was doing and getting myself started. Um, I moved to Melbourne. I met my co-founders. We got stuck into this problem. And what we realized was a universal problem without a universal solution. And you know, lots of people were interested in what we were doing, but nobody could agree on exactly what it needed to be and how it was meant to work. And we got to this point where we thought, this is not going to get us where we want to go. We're not going to be able to solve big enough pain point for the world at, at this rate. So that's when we sort of stepped back and thought, is there another problem or is there something related to this that would be more fruitful? And we had this sort of insight that what if rather than trying to solve it at the individual level, we solved it at the organizational level? Right. What if we thought about feedback at the organizational level? Dr. Jason McPherson became our first employee and our chief scientist. He came from an employee engagement background. And so, you know, we, we combined to say, let's, let's solve this problem there. And the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> I'm having a chat with uh, Didier Elzinga, the CEO and co-founder of Culture App. This is a chat which took us four years to organize. Uh, <laughs> I, ironically, because we were trying to do it in person. <laughs> yes. It's always, always the problem. And, and, we probably were not far apart from each other in various parts of the world yeah. at all sorts of times, well, but we never quite A number realized. of times we just missed each other by days. Or, and and yeah. I, I think it's just, you know, it's really to me symbolic of the times we're in that now that, of course, we're all remote, in some ways it's easier to connect with people <laughs> than it is when you, when you try to do things physically. It is. Somebody said to me the other day that the great thing about the moment at the moment is that you can get to speak to anybody. Like everyone's really busy, but nobody's got anything on in the evenings and nobody's doing anything on the weekend. <laughs> so so let, let's start at this because uh, this is really unprecedented, I think. And I would even say in human civilization that we've got such a mass global experiment in changing <laughs> style of work uh, for good and bad. And uh, I mean, there's all sorts of organizations experimenting, people doing things with culture. But, you know, now that we're in this, do you think that data around performance and engagement is actually more important now than it was in the more sort of blended workforce that, that we're in even three or four months ago? Mm. So let me unpack that. I guess there's a couple of things. I think we have had this type of situation before. Um, if you think about the effect that the world wars had, right? that was a situation where the, not the whole, but a very large part of the world had to very rapidly adapt to a very different environment. And I think that's what we've seen here too. But certainly in recent time, we haven't seen anything like it. And for some, 
for so much of the world to be going through the same thing at the same time is is pretty unprecedented. And so when when we think about you know using data and sorry, I'll have to you know apologize to your listeners that I will interchangeably switch between data and data oh, yes, throughout. Uh, it's <laughs> just uh, the Australian US in me. <laughs> <laughs> it's the international citizens curse. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll do it even in a sentence. So I'll just pull that out up front. But I think what we're we're seeing is what's happened in right now is that people need different data. And what they've realized is that similar things that they're worried about, but they're worried about them in a much more visceral way. And they're trying to work out how to adapt much more quickly to what's going on. Mm. So one of the things that we talk about is that in a crisis, most people will tell you that one of the most important things is communication. So how does leadership communicate? Because that is often a very strong predictor for how well the organization will go. And something a lot of people forget is that half of good communication is listening. And data is basically listening. It's using data to help you understand what matters to your people or to what you're trying to measure or whatever it is that you're using the data for. And so I think right now, driven by a need and a desire to communicate at a much more rapid pace and in a much more effective way, people are trying and sometimes succeeding to use data in a, in a better way. And so I think I'm actually cautiously optimistic about what this will mean with a you know HR lens in terms of how companies think about the experience they're creating for their people, of which performance is a big part. And this is particularly important, I think, you know, in times of transformation, but especially in this circumstance where we don't exactly know what we're transforming to. And, and, and I guess only by looking at the data that's coming through, are we, can we course correct rapidly um, if these new organizational forms are, are not working out? Yeah, that and, and also that we have to be aware of the impact on our people in a way that maybe we haven't normally. And so, you know, I think one of the, the, the best tweets that I've seen of this whole crisis uh, was somebody tweeted, uh, you're not working from home, you're at home in a crisis trying to work. <laughs> and there's a very important distinction there. And so what's happening at the moment when we're using data is we're not just going, let's look at what makes offer a high performer in our organization. We're going, what can we learn about the experience that our people are having when everyone's been flung to the four winds and they're you know, some of them are working at home with kids. Some of them have got carers. Other of them are sick. Like this, the aperture of the experience of our people is so broad right now. Mm. And we have to, as leaders and as organizations, we have to open ourselves up to that too, to, to better understand what are our people dealing with, to your point, if we're going to be able to rapidly actually take that on board and make better decisions and better choices. It's not just that there's a magic way of working that we haven't figured out yet. You know, a big part of of building out a distributed organization is breaking down some of the silos and structures of the traditional mm. organization. And uh, part of that is more delegated decision-making, uh, allowing you know small empowered teams at the edges to to basically have more authority to do more, do more stuff. Even mm. in your own organization, uh, what have been some of the challenges around that? And is data a bit, you know, the way we use data and the way we talk about data, has that become, has that been a, a key factor, you know, in, in allowing that to happen easier? Yeah, I mean, I think when we think about delegating, often people talk about, well, you know, we can't delegate that decision because it needs to be made by this person or that person in the organizational hierarchy. And you go, well, why? Why does that person have to make the decision? And at some level, you're like, oh, because they have the experience or the skill or whatever. But usually it's actually not. It's that they have the context that somebody else doesn't have. Yeah. And data is a is a pathway to context. And so what we see is like, you know, when this hit, 
we did what a lot of companies have done um, and we sat down and the first thing we did is we created like a daily situation room where we track everything that's changed overnight, uh, internal to the business, but also external to the world. So what's going on with the cases in, in all the countries that we operate and what does that likely in, indicate might happen from here? And then we invited, you know, as broad a group of people as we could into it. And we now publish that the results of that every day to the whole company. And at, at first it became, you know, leadership saying we just need to get we need to understand much faster. So we need to bring people together and just get that information flowing so we can make good decisions. But then it quickly became the other way too, which is, well, this is actually a tool for giving more people more context. Right. So that when they're being asked to make decisions, they're now not having to go, well, who do I have to go talk to to find this out? It's all there. And, you know, I think a crisis can be good in the sense that it, it forces you to bias to action. So rather than sitting there and going, oh, well, what if this person shouldn't see this? We're like, well, let's just let people see everything. And if there's a problem, we'll fix it. So, so do you think there's an opportunity to essentially expand that idea beyond just crisis information to all the information in an organization? I think so. I mean, there's obviously all sorts of problems in that because <laughs> there's way there's way too much data for anybody to cope with. And so how do we make that relevant? You know, I'm sure many of the people that are listening to this have, have read, you know, Team of Teams and General McChrystal's work on that. And you can see that they're actually doing a lot of work in this crisis saying to people, this is what we're talking about. This is how you operate in a fluid environment is you have to find good ways of moving information out to the periphery and having clean you know, lines of delegation so everyone can move. And one of the things that I took away from his writings that we talk about a lot at Culture, I mean, it's, it's a massive tension, is like one of our core values is, have the, uh, is um, trust people to make decisions. And so it implies a sort of autonomy and we're very team orientated. So the teams are quite protective of their autonomy, like let us go do it. The thing that a lot of people forget is that you know, in, in the situation he was talking about, they would go do these night missions. And so they'd have 20 teams set up and ready to go and they're all primed. But they knew that drone support was the number one thing that would would make those teams successful. So every night, the central leadership would decide which team got drone support and which team didn't. And the others would all stand out. And so, you know, autonomy means getting to make your own decisions and being trusted to make your own decisions. But it also means trusting others to make decisions on behalf of you. Yeah. And that's something that I think organizations are struggling with in both directions. <laughs> both sides are struggling to trust the other side to make a decision. And what's good at the moment is that people are realizing that we just have to move faster. If we're going to respond to this, we have to move more quickly. And so we're a little more tolerant of making mistakes as long as they're, you know, two-way doors and we can recover and not just standing around saying, you know, a perfect decision made too late is still a bad decision. Well, trust is an interesting, interesting factor. In fact, you know, in that research you did recently about engagement in Hong Kong, it was the it was the only thing which seemed to have gone down uh, as mm -hmm. a result of these new environments. And 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 I think although many tech companies have long experimented and had uh, distributed workforces, for many traditional organisations, this is really being thrown into the deep end of the pool. Oh, yeah. Um, how is remote work changing the dynamics of culture and and even how we measure it? Yeah, I mean, they're two fantastic questions. So I think what we're seeing is, firstly, remote work is requiring people to be much more intentional about culture hmm. because you're having to rebuild things that don't just happen. Like there's an awful lot of social trust that is built just by people being in the same space. And as a management team, you don't necessarily have to do it. It just kind of works its way out. When everyone's sitting at home, you have to be a lot more intentional about that. And in a not just if this is not to do with working from home, but it's to do with working in a crisis. One of the things that we've seen a lot of is people don't expect leaders to be heroes, but they do expect them to turn up and they expect them to have a plan and they expect them to be appropriately vulnerable to be able to share what they're worried about and what they're thinking. And I think 
what we're seeing is a lot more emphasis on leadership in its traditional forms. People want to trust the people that are making decisions when they're sitting at home, staring through a screen at the rest of the organization. And how do you feel about the company you're now working for? And so we're seeing the organizations that are doing this well are sitting down going, how do we continue to create and recreate a sense of uh, community and and bond between people in the organization? Because if we do nothing, it'll just fall away. And then secondly, how do we align and motivate people in this environment too? And how do we help them understand what's important and what we need them to focus on? So the, the things that we're measuring are moving to sort of very specific things. It's like, is this happening or is this that happening? But then also other things we're trying to do landing, other things we're trying to do working. So for example, we're running our own weekly pulse that we use to see how the organization's feeling. And a few weeks ago, well, when this whole thing started five weeks ago, I started doing a two-minute video every day. So I, every night I do a two-minute video to the whole company, just telling them how things are going, how I'm feeling, what I'm thinking about. And it's really an opportunity to bring everyone together. And it's, I've got fantastic feedback from it. And it's probably the best thing I've done in the whole... Um, it's like thing. your own asynchronous check-in. <laughs> Correct, exactly. Yeah. And people, you know, a lot of people have said they just, they value it as a, as a lodestone. It helps them mediate their own emotion to the situation. So if I'm calm, they're like, well, if he's calm, then I can be calm too. I'm not always calm. Sometimes I'm silly and, and other things. The April Fool's Day was fun. But what was interesting was that you know we asked in our pulse survey, you know, uh, it does exec. Is it exec appropriately visible? And the first thing was people like, well, Didier is. We see him a lot, but we'd like to see more from the other execs. And so then the following week, we followed up with a separate question, which is, is you know, is exec other than DA appropriately visible? And so the score dropped about 20 percentage points and people gave us feedback on it. And it was really about wanting more cross-functional communication and wanting more uh, just dropping in Slack and doing other things. So we spent a week and a half really working hard on that, did a bunch of AMAs and things, and that's now up 19 percentage points. Right. So that was a really good example of the organization saying, this is what we need to feel like we're set up to succeed. Us being able to get that, do it, and turn it around very, very quickly. What, what about performance? I, I mean, one of the big mm-hmm. shifts here is something that people have long talked about, which is measuring people on output versus what time they come into work or leave. This is being accelerated now that really we have no other way to measure people other than their output. Um, mm. are, we starting to, are, we start, are you starting to see that come through in, in your own organization, but, but also in, in many of your clients? I, I have to admit, I have somewhat of, not an allergic reaction, but like you know, when you go back to the row concept, the results only work environment, and this idea of just measure my output, that also has its own problems. Mm. Because the output that you get is the result of a system of which a person is a part, but not the whole part. Right. They don't have total and, control over it. No, so I think we also have to think about, we, we also need to measure uh, what are people doing in a, not in a times, time sense, but in a, to what do they put their attention and their focus? And one of the challenges is when you just sit down and kind of go, well, let's find an output number and then track that and then identify the people that produce the most of those output numbers and then make sure we have more of them. We miss a lot of the things that make the whole system work. Yeah. And so what I think we're looking at at the moment is, how do we think about our organizations? And the once again, this is not new, but how do we think about our organizations as a holistic system? And then how do we get, you know, how do we get people to think about working on the system rather than just producing the things? Because the the value that we create in knowledge work is not linear to the effort put in. Yeah, and and you can you can end up measuring the wrong proxies. Uh, I mean, there's terrible stories of workplace surveillance even before this crisis mm-hmm. of people measuring. You know, are you logged into your VPN or? You know, uh, I, I've even seen some solutions where the webcams are being used to actually take regular pictures to see people are at their desks. Correct. And it's like, a, you know, it's a, a false equivalence that the more time you spend at the desk, the more, the more valuable you are. Huh. 
And this is this is the I think almost the the hardest problem in business today, which is that how do you measure the things that matter? Most things that matter are very hard to measure. Right, especially if you're talking about a complex system and no, knowing being able to attribute someone's activities uh, to them versus what's what's in that complex system is is almost impossible. So how do you do that? Well, that's where I think it's so interesting to draw upon the research. Right. So when you look at you know IO psychology and, and related fields in behavioral economics and so on, what we've seen is that there are certain things that if we look for them, we can see that other things are likely to follow. So for example, uh, we're looking at how, you know, things like belonging, for example, now we look at and go, that's actually incredibly highly correlated to engagement and very highly correlated to environments that tend to produce more outcomes. If you're not, if you don't feel like you belong, it's hard to form and participate at the level that will produce the best outcomes. And so there's quite a lot of data on what are the sorts of traits, what are the sorts of experiences, what are the sorts of things that people are having as a precursor to performing at the highest level. And if you want people to perform at that high level, then you should go look for these things. And it comes down to, there's a whole bunch of research, not just about what does it take for high performance, but what does it take for sustainable performance? I think that stuff's really interesting when we start thinking about mental well-being and you know the costs. And when it comes to measuring, what we're saying now is like, yes, great, we can see that this person hit their number, but what's their mental state? And how are they feeling now? Do they feel supported? Are they able to take time out? Because we know that if those things are not true, they may deliver that number for a period of time, but at some point they're just going to implode. And the cost of that can often be higher than all the gains brought along before. Leaders in even very big organizations often talk about culture in quite abstract terms, and, and maybe they've looked at mm. their engagement scores, and uh, but they're, they're not going deep into some of these necessarily some of these research attributes that you're talking about. How do you coach leaders to basically, I guess, have a data-driven approach to what's really changing in their organizations and, and, and how to affect it? So the, the analogy that I would often give them is to think about it, that if you're designing a survey, you, you're just trying to decide what you're going to measure. So as, some, as somebody once said, I don't know who it was, but they were very wise, culture is incredibly valuable, and, but very hard to value. <laughs> and so people know it matters, but they don't really know how to wrap their arms around it. And so what you do is you sit down and say, if you want to measure it, it's not just a psychologist in an ivory tower telling you what makes people happy. You know, there is a ton of science, and that's what a company like Culture App is there to help you do, to draw upon, you know, if I want to measure whether or not people are motivated, or I want to measure whether people have got psychological safety or whatever, we can help you do that. We can tell you what questions to ask. But the, the thing that you have to do as a business leader is that you have to think about the answer to the question of what is the experience that I want my people to have? And then what we'll do is help you measure where, where and when that is and isn't occurring. Because at the heart of what you're trying to deliver is this particular experience that will create the experience that your business is built upon. So how do you need those people to feel? What are some examples of experiences, uh, I guess, that organizations are trying to to create? Yeah, so often you sort of sit down and you think about, okay, if we want, um, sorry, my dog's barking outside. (laughs) Um, If we're a service business and we want our people to feel a certain way, like one of the famous case books examples was the Ritz Cup, and their middle line was ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And what they wanted to do was produce a fairly high class service output. And so to do that, they needed their employees to feel like they could deliver that experience. Not that they themselves were necessarily the people that were taking it, but a lot of their whole thing was around, if somebody comes to you with a problem, you own the problem till the problem is done. Because we want you to feel like you can solve any problem that a customer has. So the customer in turn knows that every person they interact with here is there to help them. That's much more nuanced than a net promoter score. It, it is. <laughs> it is. 
But I, what I would do is I would challenge people because at first people were like, oh, I can't do that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You do it with your customers all the time. Yeah. Like, you know intuitively how you want your customer to feel. And I would say you may not realize it, but for your customer to feel like that, your people have to feel like something else. What is it you need your people to feel so that your customer feels like that? And then once you have that conversation, leaders tend to open up. Is this really the future of the people and culture teams within organizations in a, in a data-driven world? Is it really around trying to get to the heart of the values that and experiences that drive organizational value? I think that's a big part of it. It's helping organizations work out what is it that is critical to us? What is it that we have to deliver on and, and where and where, where aren't we? And then the second part of it, I think, is bringing to bear what we know about people at work and helping us make sure that we're not falling short or falling into a trap. So a lot of the stuff we're learning around well-being, but also on inclusion and diversity is stuff that you may not get to on your own. Right. Like you don't necessarily sit down and say, all right, it's really important my people don't feel like this and feel like that. So instead you're coming in going, it's great. I want my people, uh, you know, our product is the best product in the market. So it's really important that our people are very knowledgeable and very craft orientated and very skillful and great. So you create that experience. But you can unwittingly, when creating that experience, realize that you're actually creating all these other traps that you might not be aware of. And that's where people and culture can be so powerful because they can say, hey, this is great. This is the golden side of what you're doing. But the shadow side of the, of that approach is this. So how are we going to protect for that? How are we going to create an environment where excellence doesn't become a byword for bullying? Yeah. And, and you know, to that point, especially as you start to bring in more data and machine learning and AI and algorithms, it opens up a lot of ethical issues around people analytics. Uh, yes. You know, I was fascinated with your turnover prediction tool, but, but I also was <laughs> kind of terrified about how you would weaponize something like that. I, I feel like we don't talk about this enough. Do you, what are your perspectives on this, on the, so the, the ethics of, of data? I could not agree more. I think we have to be very careful. And, and you know, we were we spent a lot of time thinking about how we rolled that out to try and make it as uh, round as many edges off on as we could, because you're right. Like the problem is that when we're doing, you know, most of our machine learning, statistical learning, et cetera, we're doing some form of statistical model or some sort of predictive model. Mm. And so the model is designed to work at a population and it will tell us that we might be able to tell you, for example, that women in engineering at your organization are twice as likely to leave than men. And the data may very well support that number and it is essentially true. The problem is that people then want to turn that into a report so that a manager has a team of five and he has four men and one woman and he looks at it and says she is more likely to leave than the men. And actually that could be incorrect. That may not be an accurate interpretation of the data that we have because at that size, 50 women like her are more likely to leave than 200 men like them. But you can't actually say that she is more likely to leave than the four men. Yes. That is a misuse of the statistical um, data. And, and you get into even more problems when you actually build that into an algorithmic hiring tool. I think which, which Amazon Correct. had this issue when they were trying to scale up and automate hiring. Yeah. So I think the challenge for us as an industry uh, and for HR in general is that we have to work on the literacy, not just the answers. Mm. And so one of our other values is uh, the other interpretation of that trust people to make decisions is not just, hey, give people autonomy. It's also that as a, as a company that builds software, we still want humans. And our job is to describe the world in more and more uh, sophisticated and helpful ways, but to arm humans with better data to help them make a decision. So data informed, not data driven. And so that's a big part of what we think about at the moment. And I'm very worried about the ethical things that you talk about because people will look for easy answers. Yeah. And you know, a lot of this data was, a lot of this machine learning and so on was designed to help us with problems at scale. Like, 
you know, should the button go to the left or the right of the thing, we'll split, we'll create a bunch of versions, we'll split test all of that, we'll have that automatically done, and wow, we've got a 2.3% improvement in click-through. Great, that's a fantastic use. But if you decided whether you're firing or hiring someone, I'm not sure that's an appropriate use of that data. I feel this becomes even more important in a distributed environment where, as you say, you don't have all those signals of people being together and being able to read each other. Uh, mm. HR departments, a lot of them have been traditionally full of quite transactionally driven people, um, mm -hmm. not people who are nuanced in ethical data analysis and and, and uh, sort of um, weighting sort of different statistical models. What do you think is the new skill set for someone working in people and culture um, in that they have to walk and navigate some of these very complex issues? Yeah, I mean, it, it's I think it's a two-sided one. So on one side, they have to have the skills to understand it themselves. So a level of data sophistication that, mm. that everybody's having to develop now, but is certainly new for, for HR as, as, as along with many others. Like, you know, ideally you're comfortable with the difference between Bayesian and frequentist stats. You know, do you understand why sometimes, you know, if you've had, if you flipped a coin 10 times and it's come up head 10 times, what's the chance of it coming up head the next time? Depends on your point of view. Maybe the coin <laughs> is rigged. Or if you, or, or, or if you like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So on one level, it was an increasing sophistication. But then on the other hand, the probably even more important skill is to to educate others that may not have that sophistication. Because people in culture and HR, by nature of their role, has access to this data. They need to have access to this data. And they've developed their own ways of managing that ethically and making good choices on behalf of the people that they support and look after. But increasingly, they're going to be giving tools to managers and leaders throughout the organization to make choices with that data. And so they have to be able to educate those people too on how to use that data well when those people are going to have even less time and less uh, aptitude to the data they're presenting to them. And so I think it's a, it's a two-sided thing. They both have to be able to develop their own sophisticated understanding, but they also have to learn how to communicate that to, to other leads. So from a culture and organizational design standpoint, what are the kinds of organizations you think will come out of this in a much, not only in a better shape, but, but really primed to accelerate their growth uh, post-crisis? Mm. I mean, we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, one thing that's really interesting about this situation is that so much of what we learn about crisis management is around responding to a crisis after it's happened, mm. not responding through a crisis because we're not used to that. Generally, you know, something happens and then we have to deal with the aftermath. This is a situation where it's unfolding every day and every week and we're having to change course as it happens. So, you know, since the wars, we probably haven't seen something quite like this. What I think there's a couple of things that I think will stand the companies that will come out really well. I mean, there are some companies that just by virtue of which industry and business they're in will look really good. But for the rest of us, it's the organizations, the way I think about it right now, some people are kind of going, whatever type of company and culture I had before is not relevant anymore. It's about being a wartime culture and it's just all hands on deck and we'll do whatever it takes to survive. Mm. I would say in this situation, what you're seeing is your culture. And if you don't like it, that's the culture you created. The way you show up as a leader, but also the way your people show up, that's what you've been building for the last however long. And if you don't deliver on your culture now, it doesn't mean anything. And when you're standing successful on the other side, your culture will be why. Because there's a there's an understandable thing where some people are like, look, I don't have to worry about my employees. They're just going to be happy to have a job given what a bloodbath it is in the markets right now. And there's probably a certain element of truth in the short term. But all the working you're doing now, going back to your point about how you accelerate out the other side, is not just getting through the next weeks and months. It's what are you like at the end of the year or next year when things start coming back? And what are your best people going to do then? Because they're going to look back and go, what did my company reveal it to be, reveal itself to be in a crisis when it was put 
under enormous pressure, you know, and it's, it's, it's an overused quote, but I like it. Adversity doesn't build character, it reveals it. And so I think the companies that will do really well on the other side are the ones that prove themselves to have a culture that is real, to believe in things and to be willing to hurt for those things and to have an organization that basically gets, you know, tempered in, in this crisis for that to be something much stronger than it could be in any other way. And that will go a very, very long way. And people forget that three of the five most valuable companies in the world, uh, so Facebook, Google, and Amazon, were all built during the toughest funding environment that there was for the last 15 years up until probably now. So great companies get built in these environments because only the strong survive, I guess, in a way. And it's not strong from an economic point of view. It's actually from a culture and will point of view. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.